Uh, before you say, it turned into a Latin word, prolegomena, but before you say, before we start into the sermon series, let's do a little bit of an introductory work on why the book of Daniel. Why the book of Daniel? And I think to begin our time, I want to read verses 1 through 7 in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel including some of the royal family of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had an ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years and at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now, among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the, king, the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you with such great anticipation. We love your word. We love every single line, every word. We love your word. We study it. We revere it. We respect it. We enjoy it. We want to be satisfied in it. Even today with a sermon that is maybe a little bit more lecture than it is actual sermon. God, I pray that we would still grow in our affections for your word. We love this book. We're so thankful for this book. Even today as we study, may we be reminded of its veracity, that it is so true. It's truthful in every part. It matches and corresponds to the secular history books on exactly what happened so long ago. We know exactly what happened in the past because you declared it would happen in prophetic voice. We're so grateful for this book and we're so grateful specifically for the book of Daniel. Father, prepare us now as we embark on a study through a book that just seems more relevant today than ever before. Prepare our hearts for the days that are coming in our nation and in our culture for persecution, for suffering, for the days when we will have to stand like Daniel and like his three friends. Teach us. And this morning, God, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Grant us grace to see Christ. We pray it all in his name. Amen. 
So before we begin our sermon series in the book of Daniel, I want to do two main things. Number one, I want to look at some background information, just kind of ask the question, what is the book of Daniel all about? What is going on in the book of Daniel? Let's look at some background information, and then let's go to really the sermon portion of today's message. Why are we studying it? So uh, as one of my friends back in college days used to say, this is a lerman. It's a lecture sermon. This is a combination of some lecture points and then some sermon points, but hopefully we get to the sermon very quickly, because what we're going to do as we see the, the book of Daniel unfold to us is we are going to see ourselves almost in every single text, understanding the reality of what God is doing in and through Daniel and his friends. So first, let's get a little bit of a historical perspective on where we are when we dive into the book of Daniel. First of all, when? When is the book of Daniel happening? When is Daniel Occurring. Well, you can see it there in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. So the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim is 605 B.C. We know that without a shadow of a doubt. So 605 B.C. Jehoiakim is reigning in Judah. Let's get our bearings a little bit. I'm very sorry because I am a history nerd and I love this stuff and I geek out on this stuff. I absolutely love it. So geek out with me for five minutes. Let's get our bearings, okay? Historical bearings. First king of Israel is who? First king of Israel, Saul. I mean, if you want to say God, yes, you're right, theocratic, but Saul, first human king. Second king? David, third king? Solomon. And then what happens after Solomon dies? Solomon dies, just for reference, frame of reference. Solomon dies in 931 B.C. So 931 B.C., here in Daniel, it's 605 B.C. Remember, B.C. counts down to zero. So 931 B.C., Solomon dies, and you remember his son Rehoboam begins to rule over the United Kingdom, over all of the 12 tribes of Israel. But you remember, he is pretty much a loser and decides to do things in a very, very bad way and alienates 10 of the 12 tribes to the north. Jeroboam begins to reign in the north over the divided monarchy, the divided kingdom. 10 tribes go to the north, two tribes stay in the south. Rehoboam rules over the two tribes in the south, and they are Judah and Benjamin. But because Benjamin is so small and Judah is so much bigger, they just call the southern kingdom Judah. So when we get here in verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, we're talking about those two southern tribes in the north, ten kingdoms in the north. You remember Isaiah prophesied that if they did not repent of their idolatry, that they would be taken away into exile by Assyria. And sure enough, that happened in 722. So some landmarks on our timeline here. 931 B.C., Solomon dies. 722 B.C., Assyria deports uh, the ten tribes into their own uh, exiled state in Assyria. And then in the south, those two tribes in the south, Jeremiah is a prophet to those two tribes. And he says in Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12, if you do not repent of your idolatry, you too will be taken into captivity by Babylon. And you will be there for 70 years. So 605 B.C., it's the... Uh, Almost, almost that turn of the century there, there are two massive superpowers in the known world at 605 B.C. There's Babylon and there's Egypt. And they're both fighting for control over Israel. It sounds like what goes on today, right? Everybody's fighting for control. Who can own and control Israel? So 
Egypt and Babylon, they've been fighting. They've been having little mini skirmishes for about three years around Israel, but nobody has ever made a decisive blow until May or June of 605 B.C. So May or June of 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar attacks the Egyptian armies at a battle called, very famous battle, Battle of Carchemish, and he destroys the Egyptian armies. And just after the Battle of Carchemish, he goes into Jerusalem and besieges it in early August of 605 B.C. So he takes control of Jerusalem in early August of 605 B.C. And he's intending to take control of all of it, but something happens that makes him have to turn his attention back home. His father passes away. His father was king. Nabopolassar is his father, and his father died in Babylon. So August 15th or 16th, and we have all this in extra biblical reference and literature about what happened in Babylon. In August of 15, August 15th or 16th in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar leaves Jerusalem. He takes with him some of the vessels from the temple, as we read, and some of the choice people from Jerusalem, as we read, and he takes them back to Babylon. And on September 6th, 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar arrives in Babylon with all of those items, and on the same day he is crowned king of Babylon. That's the first stage of deportation with Babylon and Jerusalem, 605 BC. There's three stages, just really briefly, three stages of deportation, and you know something about all of them even without knowing that. Number one, you know the first stage, 605 B.C., Jehoiakim is king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar wins the battle of Carchemish, goes into Jerusalem, takes away Daniel and his three friends into exile, along with other people too, not just those four individuals, but other people as well. The second deportation, Nebuchadnezzar goes back in 597 B.C., eight years later, when Jehoiachin is ruling and reigning as king in Jerusalem. But Judah has refused to pay their annual tribute to Babylon, and so Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and he takes over 10,000 captives in the second deportation to Babylon. And you know one of those captives in the second deportation. You know four of them in the first, Daniel and his three friends. You know one of them in the second, Ezekiel. Ezekiel is taken away from Jerusalem in the second deportation to Babylon. The third deportation happens in 586 B.C. This is probably the most famous of all of the deportations. This is the one where Nebuchadnezzar is incredibly angry. It's the exact same reason uh, as the second deportation. Uh, Israel refused, Judah refused to pay their annual tribute. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm done with you. So instead of leaving people there, he destroys all of Jerusalem, destroys the temple. He goes in, Zedekiah is ruling as king at that time. He goes to Zedekiah. He finds all of his sons, he kills all of his sons right in front of Zedekiah, and then he blinds, he gouges Zedekiah's eyes out so that he says, the last thing you're going to see is your sons being slaughtered. And then he takes Zedekiah to Babylon where Zedekiah will die. This is the destruction of the temple. This is the destruction of the government in Judah. And you know somebody in that deportation. You know a lot of books that center, two books primarily that center around that deportation, Jeremiah and Lamentations. Lamentations is written by Jeremiah as he has seen the destruction and devastation of 586 BC. And then he leaves. He doesn't stay there and he doesn't go to Babylon. He goes to Egypt. He had been a contemporary of Daniel. So in the canonical order, in our Bibles, we have Isaiah, 
Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. In chronological order, that would be Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Lamentations. And then in 586 BC, at that point in Israel's history, they are functionally, they've lost their entire independence. They have no land, they have no king, they have no government, they have no temple. And that really begins what is described for us in the Bible as the time of the Gentiles. Now the Gentiles own and operate the the world, and that will continue all the way through the tribulation and the great tribulation when the the Antichrist rules as a Gentile power over all of the world. And then Jesus will return and establish the government in Israel again that will be on his shoulders that will never end. He will establish the temple again. He will establish all of those things. So when was Daniel written? We have a a grid now. The earliest date that it would have begun is 605 BC because that's when this first verse is taking place in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. The last date that uh, it could possibly have been written, uh, at least as far as we see in the book, is 537 BC. In chapter 10, verse 1, Daniel writes, in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, And Daniel died somewhere either between 535 or 534 B.C. in Susa, in Persia, at nearly 94 years old. That's probably why he actually didn't go back to Jerusalem in 536 when Cyrus began allowing exiles to return. He probably just stayed behind because he was old, and he uh, died a a few years later. So that's historical background. When is Daniel taking place? It's taking place between 605 B.C. and 537 B.C., with Nebuchadnezzar ruling and reigning in Babylon and taking three deportations of Jewish people from Jerusalem into exile. Who's the author? Second question, who's the author? Seems like an easy question. Seems like we could say Daniel and move on. Unfortunately, there is a massive amount of controversy about who wrote the book of Daniel. It's actually the most criticized book in the Old Testament. Daniel is the most criticized book in the Old Testament. And here's the reason why. If we can boil it all down, Daniel has a lot of prophecies. And in the prophecies, there are some specific prophecies that are given that are so specific and so accurate that people who do not want to believe the Bible will say, there's no way that those were predicted before they happened. This has to have been written by somebody after the events happened looking back on them and writing as if they are prophesying, but they're really just lying. They're just lying, saying, I know these events happened. Let me write as if I were Daniel before the events happened, saying that they, you know, it's a prophecy from God, but really it's just lying. There are Bible scholars. You could use, you could put that word in quotes. They're scholars, but they do not love Jesus They deny the inspiration of the the scriptures. They deny supernaturalism altogether. So they say prophecy doesn't exist. A a foretelling of the future doesn't exist. Therefore, that can't be what's happened. So what's our reasonable, rational explanation? It's that somebody wrote it after the event. So that's why this is a controversial book. Daniel 11 describes in great detail events between Daniel's time period in the 500 B.C. and the Syrian king Antiochus IV, who lived in the 100s B.C. And they are so accurate... And they are so perfectly given that people will say, no, no, this, this can't be before, written beforehand. But there's compelling evidence that Daniel's the author. Let me give you a, a few lines of argumentation. Let's look biblically. First of all, Daniel claims to have written it. 
So either Daniel did write it, or we should throw the whole Bible out. Because if somebody lied about being Daniel, and this is that lying book, manipulative book, I don't care what their motive was, they're lying, and we should throw the book out. So either Daniel wrote it, or we should just, we should just go home. Mother's Day, let's go celebrate, forget reading this. Daniel claims to have written it. Daniel chapter 7, verse 15. Daniel chapter 7, verse 28. Daniel 8, verse 1. Daniel 8, verse 15. He says, I, Daniel, saw or heard or prayed. Second, Ezekiel refers to Daniel. Ezekiel refers to Daniel. Remember, Daniel arrived eight years before Ezekiel. So Daniel was getting things set up in Babylon's empire. And Ezekiel comments about Daniel already having been there. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14, Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 20, and Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 3. So Ezekiel says, Daniel, and by the way, he puts him in the company of other historical figures like Noah. So he's saying these are actual real historical figures that lived in this time period uh, that wrote these things down. Third, and and really the, the easiest one for me to turn to and to believe in is Jesus himself confirmed that this was written by Daniel. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, in the Olivet Discourse, as Jesus is describing the end times, he uses a phrase from the book of Daniel, the abomination of desolation. And when he says those words, Jesus says, which was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So again, that to me ends the entire controversy. Jesus himself said, Daniel wrote this book. But if that's not enough for you, let's just look extra biblically really quickly in apocryphal books, extra-biblical literature, in the book of 1 Maccabees. So this is not inspired in errant scripture. This is extra-biblical historical literature. In the book of 1 Maccabees, which was written in 120 B.C., so after the events of Daniel, it mentions incidents from Daniel as though they were from ancient times, written long ago. And critics would say that the book was written during that time. Critics would say Daniel was written during the time of 1 Maccabees, but 1 Maccabees is saying all that stuff happened way before us. The book of Baruch, another apocryphal book written about 200 B.C., refers to Daniel, again, before Daniel was ever to have been written. Daniel, if you're going to take the view of liberal biblical scholars, you're going to say Daniel was written in the 100s B.C., but the book of Baruch, 200 B.C., so 100 years before those scholars would say Daniel was written, Baruch identifies Daniel as having already been written and those events already have taken place. Daniel is included in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was completed before the Maccabean era in 173 B.C. Daniel uses the Aramaic language in a a large portion of its uh, book. And nine-tenths of the Aramaic vocabulary that's used in Daniel is from the 5th century B.C. or before. We we know language morphs and changes and evolves over time. We don't say, thus spake anymore. So if you ever saw a sentence that says, thus spake, you would know, well, that's not from now. Same thing in any other language. You can know it's morphed, it's changed. In addition, one last little bit of extra biblical evidence. Eight manuscripts of the book of Daniel were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date back to 200 B.C. And the Essenes who kept the Dead Sea Scrolls were ultra-conservatives. They would not have included any recent or false books or questioned books. And yet there are eight manuscripts of the book of Daniel in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in addition to all of this, Josephus recounts a story about Alexander the Great and the book of Daniel. So there's biblical evidence, which is enough for us to say. Jesus said that this is written by Daniel, we're good to go. And there's extra biblical evidence that also supports it. 
So who wrote the book? It's Daniel. Daniel wrote the book. Daniel was about 15 years old in 605 B.C. when he was exiled into Babylon. He was about 85 years old when Babylon ceased to exist. They were in in captivity for seven years. And then he went into Persia that took over Babylon and he lived there for some 10 years and then died. Most of the 70 years of captivity are not recorded for us in Scripture. We have little vignettes, little stories here and there from Daniel, Ezekiel, a handful of the Psalms, most explicitly Psalm 137. But Daniel, the author of this book, outlived his city, his nation, five kings of Judah, five kings of Babylon, and two different world empires. This guy is amazing. Daniel is amazing. I love this guy. He is just amazing. I cannot wait to hang out with him in heaven one day. Finally, for some background, just one last question. We've covered the uh, when was this book written and looking at the background information. We've covered who wrote this book. And now the last question, what's the outline of this book? And this is important for us to understand because it's very, very interesting the way Daniel wrote this book. The outline, you you can have one of two outlines. Outline number one is two parts, narrative and prophecy. And it's split right in the middle. It's a 12-chapter book, and it's split right in the middle. Chapter 1 through 6 is narrative. It's stories. It's specific hand-picked stories. There are six of them. Daniel picks six stories to tell us over the course of a 70-year period of exile in Babylon. He picks six little stories to give us a picture of the sovereignty of God in exile in Babylon. And then he goes into prophecy. So if you want to split the book in an outline form in two parts, chapter 1 through 6 is the stories and the narrative. Chapter 7 through 12 are the prophecies. And they are amazing prophecies. We've gone through some of them. They're amazing prophecies. In fact, because the book is not all prophecy, and it's half and half, narrative and prophecy, in our Bibles, Daniel is a major prophet. In Hebrew scriptures, Daniel is not put into the prophets, he's put into the writings because he's recounting historical information and narratives. There's one other way to outline the book, and it is fascinating. It's very, very unique. Daniel is a -a one-of-a-kind book because Daniel begins in the Hebrew language. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 4, at the beginning of verse 4, is in Hebrew. And then in chapter 2, verse 4b... It switches to Aramaic, and it's Aramaic from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 7. And then it switches back to Hebrew. Now, why does that happen? It's because Aramaic was the language, the trade language of the people. It was a common language, trade language of the people, pagan Gentile nations. So what Daniel is doing is he's saying, I want to give you stories for you Jewish people specifically, and then I want to give you the stories and the accounts for all of the nations to hear and to read. Specific prophecies given to all of the nations for them to hear and to read. And then once that's over, I'm going to go back to God's plan and purpose for just the Jewish people in chapter 8 through the end of the book. So you could outline it that way if you wanted to, according to language. But it almost fits the, the first easy outline as well, narratives and prophecies. Okay, there's the lecture. There's the background. Now the sermon. Why are we studying this book? I could just say it's awesome. Somebody told me last week, you say the word amazing too much. And I say this because everything is amazing. It is an amazing book. Five reasons. 
five reasons why we're going to study the book of Daniel. Number one, Daniel will give us a window into how to live as Christians in a non-Christian culture. Daniel will give us a window into how to live as Christians in a non-Christian culture. Now, I say that very specifically. Daniel's not going to teach us that. This isn't a prescriptive book. This is just describing certain things. So it's not go and do what Daniel's doing. It's telling us this is how Daniel lived his life, and we're going to take implications from that. So it's a window into a man who is a follower of Yahweh, four men actually, who are followers of Yahweh, who are in an exiled pagan nation, And they're going to have to stand. They're going to have to make some decisions. And I believe that we're in the same exact place. No, we're not exiled as far as, you know, deported from America. But we are living as Yahweh worshipers and followers. But we're living in a pagan culture. We are entering an era in which there is no social benefit to being a Christian. In fact, I think that it's worse than that. There may actually be a social cost to being a Christian. And the reality is we've always been aliens and strangers in this world. We've always been exiles. That's never changed. We just feel it a little bit more. We just sense it a little bit more. What does it look like to live as a Christian in a society that does not like what Christians believe, does not like what we say, does not like how we live. How are we going to live in this new normal? And I would say, enter the book of Daniel. Daniel's going to help us. Daniel's not going to give us everything, but Daniel's going to help us. It's a window into how to live. When we find that our feet are forcibly planted in the soil of an anti-God, anti-Christian culture, it's absolutely imperative that our hearts be drawn to heaven and our minds be immersed in the word of God just like Daniel and his three friends. And if this is the case, you will end up looking way beyond your context and your culture to see an optimistic, hopeful, eternally hopeful uh, grid of what the world looks like. It's going to change the way you live. In fact, just go to one passage. Go back to Jeremiah. You know Jeremiah 29, 11. You know that passage. Many of you could quote that. Jeremiah chapter 29, and we're going to go back to this over and over again. Remember, Jeremiah is a contemporary of Daniel. Jeremiah was written uh, actually after the events of Daniel because he was in 586, not the deportation, the first one in 605. Before Jeremiah 29, 11, Jeremiah tells the exiles, well, it's God telling through Jeremiah, how they are to live in exile. And I believe that something has happened to us as Christians where when we see the danger in the culture and uh, persecution on the horizon and we get scared and we get a little bit pessimistic and we get withdrawn, we get bitter, we get frustrated, and we just kind of tend to think, okay, now what are we going to do? Where are we going to move? I want you to listen to the words that God gives to the aliens and exiles in a foreign pagan nation. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. What are you supposed to do? Freak out. Move away. Fight as hard as you can. Never talk to anybody. Stay inside. What are you supposed to do? Verse 5, build houses and live in them. 
plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that you may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. This is Babylon. This is a pagan city. No, pray for their behalf. Be good for the city. Pray for its welfare, for in its welfare, you will have welfare. There's a better way to live in these days than growing angry, bitter, retreating, or giving up. And it would be living with an optimistic, eternally hopeful, confident assurance of God's good purposes, even in the midst of suffering and hard times. Samuel Rutherford said, A pool of standing water will turn stagnant. Faith grows more with the sharp winter storm in its face. Grace withers without adversity. You cannot sneak quietly into heaven without a cross. So let's not be afraid. Daniel will give us a window into how to be Christians in a non-Christian world. Number two, a second reason why we're studying this book is Daniel will give us a window into how to respond to pagan rulers. Daniel will give us a window into how to respond to pagan rulers. How are we to respond to those in authority over us that hate God and do not want to see his people grow? Remember, Daniel was carried away in the first stage of deportation of Judah in 605 BC. He would have been about 15 years old at the time, and he lived for 70 years in Babylon which is a thoroughly pagan city with evil rulers who seemingly had limitless power. So how do we deal with them? This book will show us how to respectfully, winsomely stand against the evils of the government while honoring God. One commentator said it this way, Although the known facts of Daniel's life are so few, nevertheless he is revealed as a man of stalwart character and priceless convictions. He is willing at all times to stand up for what he believes, and he is a true hero of the faith. And then he says this, coupled with this, there is a gentle courtesy in his relationship with others and a simple and humble dependence upon the grace and the power of the God whom he worships. Would you be characterized in your relation to the governing authorities over you as courteous, simple, and humble? Because Daniel was, even while saying no. This is going to be a blessing to us to figure out how to do that well. Far from being a rebel or a jerk, Daniel and his friends will say no to the king, but in a compassionate, clear, and compelling way. Reminds me of John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist? He's in, uh, imprisoned by Herod because of what he was preaching against Herod. You're not allowed to take your, uh, adulterous, uh, the adulterous affair that you've been having, the divorce is uh, unbiblical, marrying your uh, related wife that's not allowed, your sisters, your husbands, your brother's wife. You're not allowed to do that. Uh, this is not good. This is unbiblical. And you remember, he's going to get his head chopped off for saying that. But in the meantime, while he's in prison, before his head's cut off, Mark tells us that Herod used to love to visit John in prison because he loved listening to him. So there's a way to be able to say, you're wrong, you're living in sin, and if you do not repent, you will die in your sins and go to hell. There's a way to say that that makes the people say, I'll hear more. 
That's crazy, and that's what Daniel does. We must stand firm. We must live bravely when the wind of the culture is blowing hard against us. But how we do that, that's the question. How do we do that emotionally? How do we do that respectfully, winsomely? I think about our study through the book of Acts. Remember, Paul, first of all, he's always looking for gospel opportunities. So if I can, just like we studied this last week, if I can remain silent about my Roman citizenship so that that gives me a bigger audience, even in my persecution, I'll do that. And then when I'm about to be killed, I'll just bring up the fact that I'm a Roman citizen. But he's not a jerk about it. He's super kind. He's super compassionate. Hey, you shouldn't do this because I'm actually looking out for you. I don't want you to die. And I have gotten to the very end before I can speak up. So we're going to see Daniel and through Daniel see a window of how to live in this life. But Daniel's only a window. These are descriptions. They're not prescriptions. And it is abundantly clear that the book of Daniel is not primarily about Daniel. I love the way Ian Murray says this. Man-centeredness in any form disfigures the kingdom of God. The church at her best is a power in the world, not because of what she says about herself, but because of what she is by the grace of God. There are only six events from Daniel's life included in the book of Daniel. So the book's not about him. The book's not even about the exile and the deportation of the Jewish people into Babylon. The book of Daniel is about God. The book of Daniel is about God's sovereignty in all of human history. I like the way one author puts it. He says this, quote, This book is not intended to give an account of the life of Daniel. It gives neither his lineage nor his age and recounts but a few of the events in his long career. Nor is it meant to give a record of the history of Israel during the exile, nor even the captivity of Babylon. Its purpose is to show how, by God's providential guidance, his miraculous interventions, his foreknowledge and almighty power, the God of heaven controls and directs the history of nations, the lives of Hebrew captives, and the mightiest of the kings of the earth for the accomplishment of his divine and beautiful plans for his servants and for his people. This book is about God. God is the hero of this book, not Daniel. I don't know if you've ever talked to missionaries who are translating the Bible into the language of the people that they're going to for the very first time. I've had a, a couple opportunities to hear missionaries who go translating the Bible into the, the language of the people for the very first time. They've never had the Bible in their language. And they will say, as they get the Bible, as they go through it, they'll start in Genesis and they'll start going through the story because the Bible is a story. It starts with beauty. It starts with holiness. It starts with paradise. And then Genesis chapter 3, it, it all is broken. But in Genesis 3.15, there's a promise. There is going to be somebody who's going to show up to bring back paradise, to conquer the devil, to conquer sin, and to fix what's broken. And from then on, just think about reading the Bible for the very first time. From then on, the question is, is that the guy? You get to Moses. He looks like a hero to me. Is he going to be the one who fixes what's broken? And then you read a little bit further and you go, he's a great guy, but no, he's not going to fix it. He's broken too. Get to David. 
David's amazing man after God's own heart. Is he the hero? And the people will say to the missionary, to the translator, he's got to be the hero, right? Well, no, just read a little bit more. He's not the hero. He's not going to fix what's broken. He's broken too. You get to Daniel. Is Daniel the hero? There's nothing bad said about Daniel. Is, is he the hero? Maybe. But you get to Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel prophesies that there is one coming, the Son of Man, who is the hero, sent from the ancient of days to bring power and dominion to all who would follow him. You get to the New Testament, and missionaries will say, when you get to John the Baptist, that's when people go, he's the hero. Look at him. Look at what he's doing. He's establishing the kingdom. Prepare the way. He's getting it ready. This is it. And the missionaries will say, no, no, he's not the hero. Just wait, just wait. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And everybody just goes nuts. That's the hero, that's the hero. And then if you've read the Gospels, almost all the Gospels go back to John. John goes, there's the guy. And then we go back to John. And missionaries will tell you that people go, no more John. We don't want to hear John. We saw the hero. We met the hero. We want to hear more of the hero. Daniel's not the hero of the book of Daniel. God is the hero of the book of Daniel. God's the hero of the Bible. So while we see a window into how to live as exiles and a window into how to respond to evil rulers, yes, it's going to be instructive and helpful. Daniel's not the hero. And I don't want us to just do character studies. Be a Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel. I don't want to do that. I want to look at Daniel's God who made Daniel so courageous and so powerful. So, number three, third reason why we're going to study this book we will see God's sovereign control over individuals, peoples, empires, and all of human history. We will see God's sovereign control over individuals, peoples, empires, and all of human history. The exiles needed a book to remind them that God has not changed and he's faithful. And if they needed a book, we need one too. Daniel's name, in fact, is uh, God is judge. Uh, judge in the fact of uh, a ruler. God's the ruler. Nebuchadnezzar looks like he's in charge, but God's the ruler. Even in verse 1 of Daniel, we see Jehoiakim given to Nebuchadnezzar by God. God's the one doing this. The theme of this whole book is God's sovereignty over the lives of individuals, the affairs of nations, the span of empires, and all of human history. It's all about God. It's all about God's sovereignty. El Elyon, the name of God, God Most High, used nine times in the book of Daniel, the sovereign one over all of human history. And so Daniel's going to handpick several different accounts to highlight God's sovereignty in the midst of our human affairs. God's sovereign and he's in control. And we're going to see that time and time again in the book of Daniel. So here, here's the reality. You and I are not driving the bus, Right? We're not driving the bus. God's driving the bus. So we have one of two options here. Option number one, we kick and scream and fight, white-knuckling at every turn and going, ah, the whole way, right? We're going to get to the exact same place. The destination is the same. So option number two is better. God, where are you going and how can I follow? God, where are you going? I want to follow. And I want to do so with joy, I want to enjoy the ride. It's your choice. You're getting to the same place. God's the one driving the bus. You're getting to the same place. 
This book will teach us of God's sovereignty. Number four, fourth reason we're going to study this book is to see God's sovereign protection of his people. God sovereignly protects his people. I think the book of Daniel is written to remind us of God's sovereign protection and sustaining of his people. So he's sovereign over all of human history, but it would be very easy to say, well, then he's not very personal about the way he interacts with me. He's sovereign over everything, so I'm just a little pawn. No, that's not true, and we're going to see that in Daniel. God's sovereign over everything, but he loves you. He knows you. He calls you by name, and he, he desires to protect you. He loves you. Just even think about Daniel. Daniel is sent in 605 B.C. to Babylon, and he goes through all the training, and he gets to know all the staff and the government and the way things operate. And then fast forward 18 years, you get to the big deportation in 586 B.C. You get to the big one where everyone comes to Babylon from Jerusalem. Daniel had already been there. God picked Daniel and his three friends to go ahead of everyone else, 18 years ahead of everyone else, to prepare the way for Jerusalem and all of the Israelites to live well in Babylon. Daniel is... For Israel in Babylon, what Joseph had been for Israel in Egypt. God does such an amazing job in caring for his people, even when we feel like he's not doing it. God is forearming his people to face persecution, even to the birth of the Messiah. Daniel's paving the way for the wise men to know about Jesus' birth. God's always sparing his people. In here, in Daniel, it's going to be the Jewish people. God's always sparing his chosen people And then he's going to ultimately spare his people that he loves now in the the church. He loves both. God's chosen people, Israel, still exists. That's what we studied in the book of Revelation. And God loves you, called according to his purpose. People are always trying to destroy the Jewish people. We saw why in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12 gave us the motive for why the devil hates Israel. But every time somebody tries to destroy the Jewish people, One of my professors used to say, every time they try to destroy the Jewish people, the Jews get another holiday. (laughs) They can't win. The pagan people can't win. Just think about it. Egypt tries to destroy Israel, and Israel is led out through the Red Sea, and we get Passover. Haman tries to kill all of the Jews in the book of Esther. Haman's ultimately killed, and we get Purim. You have these beautiful pictures. Even in the book of Daniel, we're going to see the prophecy of Antiochus Epiphanes and what Antiochus Epiphanes is going to do. And God protects his people in the midst of that severe persecution, which is the worst that the Jews had ever faced up until that point. And we get Hanukkah out of it. Nebuchadnezzar is going to try a little bit of a different route by intermingling Jews with the Babylonians. And it looks like Yahweh has lost And Marduk, the chief god of Babylon, is one, but not so. God is sovereign, and he's protecting his people and preserving them in the midst of the persecution that they're facing. Daniel gives us the meaning of human history more clearly than any other book. And it teaches us, as one commentator says, that sometimes God may allow hardships to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. That's what we'll see time and time again in Daniel. Finally, number five. So we we will see in Daniel, uh, number one, Daniel will give us a window into how to live as Christians in a non-Christian culture. Number two, Daniel will give us a window into how to respond to pagan rulers. 
Number three, God's sovereign control over individuals, peoples, empires, and all of human history will be seen. Number four, God's sovereignly protecting and sustaining his people. So sovereign over everything, but not in a a removed sense, in an impersonal sense. Finally, number five, through it all, God is sovereignly working to bring about salvation for all who would turn to him. The point of the book of Daniel is that God is providing a way of salvation for those who would turn to him. That's the point of the book of Daniel. It climaxes in Daniel chapter 7, the very middle of the book, the dead center of the book, with the ancient of days, not Daniel, the ancient of days, Yahweh, saying, I'm going to give the Son of Man to the world so that he can bring in a people group who love him, follow him, cherish him, and adore him. So no matter what happens in life, whether it's exile, whether it's persecution, whether it's deportation, no matter what happens in life, God is using it and working in all of it to bring about salvation for all who would turn to him. And so my question to you today is, have you turned to this amazing God who loves you? He sent his son for you. He sent his son to cancel the record of debt that you had against him, to take all of your sin away and to give you his perfect holiness. Have you come to him? One last thing as we close. We, we tend at CBC not to really do Mother's Day sermons or Father's Day sermons or things like that. I think I've done one Mother's Day sermon and one Father's Day over the last eight years. But I do want to tie this into to Mother's Day. I want to encourage you, moms and dads, but for Mother's Day. It is so easy to look around at our culture and think, what is going on? What is happening? Just to be very honest, my wife and I, before we had kids, gave huge thought to the reality of, should we even bring kids into this world? Look at how awful this world is. And look at how quickly it's getting worse. They're going to experience hardships and persecutions that we never faced. I remember riding my bike to the movie theater from my house. I don't think I'd ever let my kids do that now. You look around at the culture and you wonder, with fear, with anxiety, with concern and with worry, what's going to happen to my kids? And it's very easy if you're a parent or if you're parenting age or older, it's very easy to just be very pessimistic or maybe not even pessimistic, but just nostalgic. I hear a lot, man, the good old days, the good old days, if only we could go back to my, my first response is always like, what, what time do you want to go back to? What's the good old days in your mind? People, oh, inflation's over 7%. Well, you want to go back to the Great Depression? That wasn't much better. So what's the good old days? Oh, there's, there's, a, there's war going on in Europe. Yes, and it's awful, and we pray for what's going on there. But do you want to go back to the 1940s when it was a world war? Like, what's the better days? I don't know. So let's just keep moving forward. But... There are new challenges. There are worsening challenges. There are faster challenges coming. And here's my encouragement to you, parents. Your kids were made for this generation. You and I aren't. That's why we're scared to death. (laughs) Just think about Daniel's mom. 15 years old. That's five years away for Chelsea. 15 years old, watching your kids taken into exile, into 
one of the worst pagan nations at the time around. And you must have been thinking, okay, God, why? We had kids to nurture them in the admonition of the Lord. We had kids to train them, to disciple them, to point them to you. And now you've taken them away from us. He's just a boy. If Daniel would be able to respond to his mom, and I don't think that they ever saw each other ever again in this life, but if Daniel could have seen his mom, Daniel would have said, oh, mom, don't worry for me. You couldn't do this, but this is my time. And God made me for such a time as this. To use the phrase from Esther, God made me for such a time as this. So parents, we look around and we go, oh my word, what's happening? God made your kids for such a time as this. There will be dragons to slay. So let's raise our kids to be dragon slayers. There will be fights to have and to to fight as hard as they can for the glory of God. Let's teach them to do it winsomely, just like Daniel, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we're going to see. Even their very names are changed to try and get God out of their system. And they're going to say, no, I worship Yahweh alone. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. The best is always yet to come for believers. So let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Trust the ancient of days and follow the Son of God. God, we thank you so much for the book of Daniel. We are so excited to launch into it in this coming semester and into the summer and into the next year. We are so excited to see what you will teach us personally. And I pray that we would be a courageous, bold, loving, joyful congregation. That everything that we do would point people to the beauty of Christ. It's in his name that we pray all of these things. Amen. Please stand with us if you would.